Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner podcast. My name is Caleb Mason, and I am so grateful that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner. And today, I am honored to be joined by returning guest Julie Bogart to the podcast. Now, if this happens to be your first time uh, joining me in the Learner's Corner, I do want to tell you about a couple of things. And the first thing is this, is that we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations. We believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone. We believe that we can learn from anything and from everything, whether it's something serious or something trivial, and that we can learn from those who we disagree with. And the last one is this, is that we truly want to become or be the person who was there for us, the mentor that we had, or maybe the mentor that we wish to have, or maybe the mentor that we wish to had. And we want to return that favor to the next generation as well, to invest in the next generation and treat, maybe treat others the way that we have been treated or treat others the way that we wish that we had been treated. Now, if you have been listening for a while or whether or not this is your first episode, one of the best ways to keep up with us and everything that we're doing here and to continue on this journey of lifelong learning is by subscribing to my newsletter to where I just give you all of the best things that I am currently learning from, from books to documentaries, to podcasts, to articles, and even music or just the things that I am enjoying, the things that are making me think, the things that I am learning from as well. And so subscribe to it. You know, you can check out the show notes for all of the information in that. And to subscribe, I release it once a week. Now, one of the people that I love learning from is actually joining us today. And that is Julie Bogart. You know, we had her on the podcast. Um, early, yeah, it was actually earlier this year. And we talked about her book called Raising Critical Thinkers. And we're going to continue to dive into that topic. We're going to talk specifically just really around this idea of in the subject of learning of how do you become a better learner? Now, let me tell you a little bit about Julie, and then we are going to jump into the conversation. So Julie Bogart is the creator of the award-winning Innovative Brave Writer Program, teaching writing and language arts to thousands of families every year. She homeschooled her five now grown children for 17 years and is the founder of Brave Learner Home, which supports homeschooling parents through coaching and teaching. She is also taught as an adjunct professor of theology at Xavier University, and she is the author of The Brave Learner, and her most recent book is Raising Critical Thinkers, A Parent's Guide to Growing Wise Kids in the Digital Age. And without any further wait, here is our conversation. Well, Julie, it is so good to have you back on the Learner's Corner podcast today. I'm delighted to be here, Caleb. Yeah, and just as we're getting started, you know, I, I figure a fun place might be to start the conversation is I would just love to hear what are some of the the things, the ideas, some of the things that you're learning right now that are just capturing your imagination? Gosh, you mean just what I'm learning in my life right now? Yeah. One of the things that I am spending my time thinking a lot about right now is the transition in my 60s from having been an active uh, mother of children who live at home and they're all grown and out of the house and married now, 
but it's a real transition. This feeling of relevance that you have in your 40s and then even a little bit in your 50s really shifts in your 60s. And so I'm trying to learn about embracing the aging process and understanding my relationship to people who are younger than me, older than me, all of it, and really uh, coming to grips with my own sort of mortality, just paying attention to how much time I have left, how I want to spend it, what my goals are. I would say that is probably one of the top um, issues that I'm giving myself time to really investigate. Yeah. Talk to me about what you're learning through that. So one thing that has really stood out to me is you'll hear older people all the time say, say things like, you know, you've really got to just live in the moment. But when you are 30, you have so many moments ahead of you. It's very easy to just have those moments and they come and go. So I was explaining to one of my kids, my son, you know, I'm constantly doing math. I'm calculating if I live 10 more years, I'll get to see my granddaughter be 12. If I live 20 years, I get to see her be 22. But 20 years from now, I will be 80. <laughs> so there's a chance I won't be here. And he said, oh, come on, mom, of course you'll be here. And I said, okay, let me put it another way that you might not be thinking about it. I was talking with a friend, she's my running partner. We did marathons together. And she said, I love October. I said, so do I. She goes, isn't it depressing to think we might only have 15 Octobers left? <laughs> and I said, yes, actually quite depressing. And so I think this awareness of the sand slipping through the hourglass really comes into focus when you hit 60. Um, I have a little uh, cousin, he's six years old, and I visited him in Maui, Hawaii. That's where his family lives in July or August. And I hadn't seen him since he was three. So he was sort of getting reacquainted with me. And when he saw me, he said, Julie, you're old. That was his first comment. And his mother tried to change his mind. And I said, no, 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 I don't mind being old. It's okay. Later in the week, he said, Julie, you have gray hair. I was like, I really do. And his mother again tried to say, oh, don't, you shouldn't say that. And I said, but it's true. My hair is gray. Your hair is blonde. His hair is brown. He's naming. It's okay. Yeah. Well, then I just saw him at my daughter's wedding. So this is like a month after I had seen him. And he walks up to me, gives me a huge hug, puts his hand on my cheek. And he says, Julie, you have a lot of wrinkles. <laughs> and then he said, may I count them? And he just starts counting one, two, three, gets up to 25. I'm like, let's have a hug. <laughs> and so this oh. aging journey, it's very real. We don't talk about it very often. Hmm. I noticed that I, I loved my forties and thirties in particular when my kids lived at home and I felt like I was hip because they were young and hip. I felt relevant. I felt like our lives were really in sync. But now my kids are building their own lives and I have moved into a little bit more of a like nostalgic connection, like mm -hmm. not a daily connection, but more like, oh, yeah, we love mom. Oh, yeah, we want her at our events. But I'm a little bit wallpaper at times, right? Like they're on the center stage and I'm the audience in a way that I just didn't anticipate. So these are these are pretty big changes for me. Yeah. Talk to me about how that it. Talk to me about how that's changing you and like some of the things that you're having to adjust to this new season. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. 
So one of the big adjustments is prioritizing my friends, mm -hmm. that my peer group is actually the most meaningful to me now than it probably has ever been, because we are the most aware of the losses. You know, at the beginning in your 20s, 30s, you're like building a peer group to help you build. But now we have to support each other in the losses. So for instance, um, I have a therapist who I saw for 11 years. He was in a bike accident where um, he was knocked into a coma for a month and he's come out of it, but it's altered his mind, his brain, his body. And we have to be there for each other because we understand what that loss is in a way that younger people just sort of assign it to age instead of just assigning it to being human. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the piece. Like when young people are like, I'm so tired of old people talking about their aches and pains. I always like to say they're talking about it because it is startling to have your body stop serving you at the way and capacity it used to. And your body is the most personal, intimate part of your being. It's what you wake up with and live inside every day. So when it has an ache or a pain, it's like instantly fascinating. It's just when you get older, you accumulate those at a much more rapid rate and it becomes sort of uninteresting to younger people, but you need your peer group who will listen to you talk about those things. Mm, that's great. Is there is there anything else that's helping you? I would say that reading is really great. I love to yeah. read people who have walked ahead of me. I've always been interested in memoir and autobiography. Um, but the last thing I would say, and I'm assuming a lot of your audience is younger, is Notice that your parents are still very much the people they were when they were younger. Their bodies are changing, but their minds, their needs, their hearts are still the same. Mm -hmm. They want to be in meaningful relationship with you. And you can set your boundaries that you need to when they're intrusive and overbearing. But just remember that they dedicated the lion's share of their adult lives to you. And you are their greatest joy. And so when you do call them or send them a text to remind them of an inside joke, it truly does make their day, not in a condescending way, but in the most real possible way. Yeah, I think one of the things that that came to my mind as you were talking about that with my parents, one of the things that I've loved doing recently is asking them about their lives before <sighs> I came into the picture or even before that they met me. It's just amazing all of the things that you learn about and just the, the just the fascinating details of their lives and stuff. A hundred percent. In fact, my daughter, Katrin, who just got married, lives in Los Angeles, which is where I grew up. Hmm. And I got to stay there with her for a week. And it was such a joy to be able to talk about my experience of Los Angeles in the 1970s against hers now in the 2020s. And it felt like we were having a connection around all these old stories that meant nothing to her, right? When she was growing up in Ohio. And then my other daughter arrived with her baby who's only four months old. And she and my son, who also has like a six month old, they were meeting their babies for the first time and watching my two kids be parents together and talk about parenting. And then to see that they are actually having a parenting experience similar to how I raised them, and then to have a three-way conversation. Those are very meaningful, where they're finally seeing aspects of me that they took for granted uh, because they're old enough to appreciate those stories or those experiences. So yeah, you're dead on. That's mm -hmm. a lovely way to honor a parent. 
I'd love to hear from you. What are the, and again, I know that this is, you know, everybody's got their own experience and stuff like that. I would love to hear from you from your perspective, where you're at right now. What are the things that you would go back to and go like, man, I would double down on this or I would, I wish I would have done this instead, you know, in your twenties and your thirties. Oh, that's a great question. I would have taken longer to get married. <laughs> I'm divorced. So yeah. that- that's a normal comment, right? Like, I wish I had given myself a little more time in my 20s to be an independent person, not married. Uh, so that'd be one thing I would have done differently. Mm-hmm. Um, I would not, however, do differently my choices to live abroad. Those were the most life-changing, most formative experiences of my life. Mm-hmm. So I would do those again in a heartbeat. Might do them for different reasons or differently, yeah. but it almost doesn't matter the reason. Just go change your environment when you're young so that you don't assume that the way you've done it is the only way things can be done. Um, The other regrets though that I might have are more tailored maybe to my own personal experience. Mm -hmm. I wish that the era I was raised in had put a bigger priority on personal therapy after your parents' divorce. I didn't know at the time that I would have benefited from that. And it really took me too long to get to a place where I could process the pain of that experience. So it colored a lot of my marriage, my parenting, my beliefs about the world. Uh, Just for too long, I carried a lot of resentment. I, I remember someone saying time heals. And I literally said inside myself, no, it won't. I'm not going to let time heal this. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to hold a grudge for 25 years cuz that's a great yeah. idea, right? So those are those are maybe the bigger more personal mm. pieces that I would change, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. What what are some of the the things that you gained from being abroad or what were some of the things that, you know, that you learned from that? You know, we talked some about it in the first interview. Raising critical thinkers was really developed on the back of having to go through so many worldview changes over the course of my adulthood. And it started really with studying abroad when I was a junior in college. Um, I I studied at Montpellier, France. I actually went to French university. It wasn't just an international students program. I was participating like a French kid and just experiencing a completely different way of education the scoring, the oral presentations, the oral exams, that was something I'd never done at UCLA, um, was a beginning, right? Even just the experience of, you know, shopping and um, using a different language to try and express yourself. All of that really alters what you take for granted in your host culture. And so for me, I think what I discovered is that what feels familiar and ordinary to me could be felt as strange to someone else and vice versa. What feels strange when I hear about it from someone else um, is actually ordinary for them. And that flexibility of thinking, the capacity to recognize that the interior life of another person is logically congruent for them, given who they are, is the foundation of all critical thinking. And I really mm-hmm. think it it created that foundation for me. It yeah. started me on that journey of fully appreciating that that other person has a logical world inside of them. I just don't have access to it yet. Yeah. Uh, is there anything else that you're learning that you want to share about or anything just top of mind right now? 
I mean, I think those are pretty good yeah, ones. Are, I, I agree. I, I always Taylor like, Swift's new album. We could talk oh, about that. I adore so her. I love it. Oh my gosh, it's so good. So yeah, I could talk about that. The anti-hero song, I think, yeah. is brilliant. I was telling a friend of mine, I think anti-hero could be the um anthem for codependency. It's that feeling of you're trying to live your best life and you're being blamed for all this stuff and you're tempted to just be the fall guy. You know, I just think it's yeah. brilliant. She's fabulous. So yeah, we could talk about no, Taylor. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Um, <laughs> one of the one of the things I'd be curious to hear about is do you remember I know you you focus so much, you know, on, on the brave learning you talk about and you know raising critical thinkers as well as just learning as well. Do you remember like whenever learning like became like an active thing for you wherever you were like, okay, I think I want to learn could be about anything but do you remember whenever that first happened for you where i thought i need to think more about what learning is yeah yeah i think really just home education you know when i was in school i wasn't really thinking about the theories of learning i was just being a student but once i had kids and i got exposed to this notion that i could be a parent educator that i could watch the lights go on for a child who learns to read the same way I got to watch them learn to walk. Yeah. That became just truly absorbing. And so I started reading theories of education and what was most attractive to me and sort of weirdly called back to my public education was the priority on natural learning. This no notion that we are learners Learning isn't something done to a child. It's not something they have to acquire. They learn innately from the moment that they are expelled from the uterus, right? Yeah. And so once I understood that there was a natural component, then I just became obsessed with creating conditions that allowed kids to tap into that innate ability. And my education experience in Los Angeles in the 70s, I was raised actually in a school district outside of LA County and it was called the Las Virginas School District. Um, my junior high, for instance, was in Malibu Canyon. So we were kind of north of downtown LA. And these teachers were all like the first generation Peace Corps volunteers. They were hippies. They were like straight out of this sort of revolutionary progressive idealism around learning. And so they gave me such an incredible education. And when I started reading these theories of education for my kids, I'm like, Oh, that's what was going on in my schools. Oh, that's why I loved school because they were doing those things. So I'll, I'll give you a couple of great examples. Yeah. In my junior high in seventh grade, all the social studies teachers were tasked with teaching about the Renaissance, you know, that era of history, especially in Western Europe. And it ended with a capstone Renaissance fair that we put on in our own school and did not have to go to class for that whole day. So we were like building up to this Renaissance fair that we, the students were going to put on. And it included the bartering system. So some people were candlestick makers. This is the seventies. So you had people doing face painting and leatherworking and ceramics. Like this is really, you know, dried flowers, like very much, but I didn't like any of that stuff because I wasn't crafty. So my best friends and I decided to be jesters and we did gymnastics in bartering. So we'd be like, want to see a backflip? Okay, give me your candle. And we, we discovered very quickly that just performing tricks was not a very good bartering tool. Yeah. 
but it was such a lesson, right? Because it was so much more than just answer questions on a test. We actually experienced the barter system. So then what we started doing, it was amazing. We're like doing these performance tricks and some people would barter with us and then we would take what we got and we'd barter that. So we'd be like, okay, well, I have these dried flowers. What can I get for dried flowers? So this school was very much into innovative education, very personal experience-driven education. And I wanted that for my kids. Mm, I love that. Uh, talk talk to me about the difference. I mean, and you you talk about it in raising critical thinkers as well as about experiential learning. What does that do that you know the the books, which I love books, can't do? Yeah. So there's three levels of learning. There's reading, experience, and what I call encounter. Reading is the quickest way to access information, so we can get like a huge volume or a huge quantity of data or information or details that help us, you know, sort of master a subject area. But the one problem with reading is it's fully under our control. So if we get a little uncomfortable, we can stop reading. Uh, we go into reading with all of our biases fully available to us, like unchallenged. They just live in our bodies. And so we're reading along and we're like, well, that guy's stupid. Or, you know, that information doesn't make sense. Or, well, those people are weird. Like we can have those reactions when we're reading privately. So it limits the capacity to be changed by what you're learning. Experience involves more of you. I say you're learning more with more of you. So now you've got sensory data to involve, right? So if we read about the Renaissance bartering system, that's not the same thing as actually putting it into action or even just watching it in a movie where you see people actually bartering, that involves more of you. You get more of that experience to impact your biases or the nuances you didn't pick up from reading. Encounter is experience sort of on steroids. Encounter is where you are not in the power seat. So for instance, in this Renaissance fair where I'm having this experience, I'm not actually surviving off of bartering I am approximating what the bartering system feels like. So that's more of an experience. It's under my control. I'm gathering more information, but it's not really destabilizing my sense of power. Encounter does. Encounter would be like teleporting back to the Renaissance <laughs> and actually living there under the barter system, yeah. which we can't do with history. That's why we rely a lot on experiences. But what I know about encounter is Whenever you can be thrust into a context that destabilizes your authority and power, you're going to learn the most. So you could read about France, learn a lot. You could experience France as a tourist and think, wow, what a beautiful country. I learned more than I knew from books. I tasted the food. I smelled the lavender. I heard the French. I climbed into the tower and saw the village. That's wonderful. Encounter is moving to France, speaking French, and taking tests at a French university. That is, mm. holy cow, I am not in charge here. I can't master this. I am being shaped and formed and have to survive. And that's where you're going to learn the most because you do not have control. You have to adapt to this environment that is so destabilizing. So marriage is an encounter. 
You're in love with this dude that you're dating? Yeah, of course. He's so great. Dates are so fun. And then you move into the house together and you're like, wow, <laughs> I don't want to adapt to that. Yeah. That's encounter. Yeah. Mm. Is, is there an example that comes to mind of an encounter for you that that was just radically shifting or, or changing for you? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I have countless of them, yeah. but I'm going <laughs> to. They just gonna, happen throughout life, don't yeah, they? Yeah, <laughs> they happen all the time. But I'll give you an example from when I lived in Morocco, because I think these are the most valuable, these ones that happen in other cultures. So one of my good friends, when I lived in Morocco, um, had been divorced. Or, well, actually, she wasn't divorced. Let me let me back up. She was married by her parents to a guy who was far older than her. So she was like 18 and he was 40. And he went ahead and married three other women. So there were now four wives. He ignored her a lot. He didn't like her. And um, he refused to support her. So she was thrown back into her own family and was unable to um, benefit from being married. And she wanted to be divorced. And she went to a lawyer and pled her case. And she just kept pleading to be freed of this man. And he would not, he says, the law says the only person who can initiate a divorce is the husband. Ironically, at the time, legally, your divorce was official. If you said out loud in the public presence of a judge or something, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. A man could say that three times, it would be over. But a woman couldn't, and he wanted to punish her for whatever reason. And so I remember her explaining to me that she started seeing these, um, you know, what we would consider superstitious sort of witch doctor type people. Uh, she didn't call them that, but it would be like a shaman. It had a different name in Arabic. Uh, and she would go and she'd get potions to take, incantations to try uh, behaviors to change his behavior. And it was really fascinating to me because up until that point, I had always assumed that people who relied on that weren't educated, mm -hmm. but she had a university degree. She spoke three languages. She worked as a manager at an upscale hotel. And it suddenly dawned on me that oppression creates desperation. Mm. And she was looking for any mechanism that was going to free her from this controlling, abusive man. In the end, she credits this one practice that she did um, as ruffling his feathers enough that eventually her family plus this experience were brought to bear on him and he finally released her. And then she moved to Canada. She left her country of origin to avoid ever being trapped like that again. And I remember at the time just sort of being profoundly aware that my Western sort of quote unquote first world, you know, we don't use that language anymore, but that's the language I used back then had prevented me from seeing why people rely on what I would have just seen as hokey superstition to rescue them. That there was actually a level of um, oppression against women that I had never really experienced. Mm. And so I didn't understand that scale of desperation. Mm. You know, as, first of all, that's just a very powerful story. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, just as I was thinking, um, is there anything that that you've learned help has helped you in the encounter learnings 
or anything that you've seen, you know, maybe, maybe even in, in the story that you just mentioned or in the stories that you know of people who, um, what, is, what helps people in those encounter situations? The, the key, I think, in all relationships is being self-aware when you're having a reaction. So I remember being with Toria and when she was first telling me the very first one of these stories of, and they were, you know, just to give you a sort of a glimpse, they were like, collect this bodily fluid from your husband, mix it with this other fluid, put it under his pillow. Like, like they were very like graphic and kind of bizarre to me. And so my first reaction was sort of like to dismiss it. Like she didn't really do that. Wait, she she really did that? That's really stupid. Why doesn't she know that isn't going to work? Like, those were my first reactions. But because we were actually in a relationship and I was already destabilized in every possible way, culturally, I noticed that there was a certain point at which it shifted for me. And I started asking myself the question, what would motivate a person to take that extreme decision? And that was the beginning of change for me. I stopped thinking about it through my lens, which was, this makes no sense. It's not scientific. She's too smart for this. Um, Maybe she's mentally ill. Like I went through a list of very kind of cruel assumptions before I got to, wait a minute, what level of desperation must you feel to be an educated, intelligent woman with some means to think this would be a problem solver. And once I saw it through that lens, everything shifted. And then I even started thinking and trying to imagine in a limited way, when have I done irrational things to meet my desperate needs? And I had some, I started looking back at like journals I kept, practices that I had, that were sort of that same magical thinking. Maybe I hadn't gone to the shaman down the street to figure out potions, but I had, you know, um, reading a horoscope every day or writing in my journal a certain set kind of prayer every day, thinking it would magically transform something. And so it actually caused me to reevaluate some of my own practices that were tools of manipulation, right? That that, That I had not critically evaluated. Mm. Yeah, it makes me it it just reminds me of that shared sense of humanity too that yes. you were, that you were talking about because like what came to my mind as you were as you were, you know, explaining it more is like that's such a dangerous situation for her to oh. do too because of all of the lengths that she has to go through and it's like okay, so if her husband discovers that this is what's happening, oh, what's he going to do? And it did. There was one of the times where he came in and he discovered she had done something in the house and it turned into this huge explosive fight and mm. and physical violence. And so, yes, absolutely. And I think part of when you said that, I love that you just said that about the shared humanity yeah. to have some compassion for the lengths people go to when they're in a desperate situation. I think I appreciate that on a scale that I didn't before I lived abroad. And it's in our own culture. Like we tend to think what's happening out there is so irrational and bad, but we have it in its own myriad ways. I live, you know, in Southern Ohio where the opioid crisis is at an all time high. 
it's really sort of the origin place for opioid addiction. And it's so easy to just look at that population and see them as, quote, losers instead of desperate people who are being sold a solution that doesn't resolve their problems. And to really have sort of a much more profound compassion for the complexity of the dynamics that would lead someone into those behaviors. So for me, Encounter truly expands my capacity to appreciate the varieties of human experience and to be more curious about it and less judgmental. Okay, let's go back to experience because I think it's, that's what I love about, you know, what you write about in the book is that there is a place for all of them. There's a place for reading, there's a place for experience, yes. there's a place for encounter. So let's talk about experience more. Right. And what what helps you get the most out of, you know, the experience? I think experience means you're engaging more of your senses than just print on a page, right? Mm -hmm. So I love to recommend to my students, for instance, yeah, read Jane Austen, but definitely watch the movies because now you're going to hear the accent. You're going to yeah. see the clothing. You're going to watch the dance. You're going to hear the music. There is sort of this weird prejudice in literary circles that you should always read the book before you watch the movie. And I don't agree. Sometimes it's valuable to watch the movie first because now your imagination is populated with a sense of the era, the cadence of the language, the sense of humor that might not show up on the page, but now that you've heard it acted out, you can actually recognize it in the writing. And so for me, experience is a way to expand our relationship to whatever we're studying. So we can read about the results, for instance, of a scientific experiment, you know, but when we actually do the experiment, even if we know what the outcome's gonna be, watching it occur is so exciting. It's, you know, the baking soda volcano that all kids mm -hmm. love to make. You can explain to them, we're gonna add vinegar to baking soda and it's gonna bubble. Sure. Okay. Sure, Mike. That's interesting. Um, but then to actually do it, it's yeah. totally different. Your kids have a thrill factor. They have a, an observational level of relationship that changes it. Mm. Yeah. And even you mentioned in the movies, it made me think of like the, the Harry Potter books and the movies came to mind first because like it helps you picture what they look like more. Mm. And it almost creates that like it helps me create that mental picture more of like, oh, yeah, whenever I'm reading about you know, Harry and Ron and Hermione, you know, I, I picture them like they look in the movies and everything. Well, and actually Harry Potter is a really interesting example of, oh gosh, of an amazing literary experience that happened to your generation that will not be duplicated again, I'm sure in a long time. So Harry Potter sort of took the globe by storm and it was being released over time. These massive yeah. books, I mean, they are not short and so during the era that we didn't know how it ended, during that era, before we knew how it all ended, kids everywhere were engaging in literary analysis, the likes of which we have never seen. They were starting podcasts and blogs and ways to communicate about their theories, which engaged a level of imagination, analysis, thoughtfulness, and insight that has I've it's been unparalleled unparalleled in the community of students I've worked with. So what I loved about it is early on, there were no movies. 
So people were generating like their own impressions in their mind. And there is value to that. J.K. Rowling is a fairly descriptive writer. I had a completely different looking Hermione in my mind. Oh, yeah. Like I, I really pictured her a lot more nerdy than the adorable Emma Watson. Yeah. Right. Like I was like, who are you? You're not Hermione. <laughs> um, so there is sometimes value to having your own private you know, yeah. kind of vision. But flip side, especially when we're dealing with sort of historical context, sometimes that's helpful. And I do think that the Harry Potter movies created another whole interpretive structure. Each director has handled that storyline mm -hmm. differently. So it's a very, very rich text and it's created a lot of opportunities for kids to go deep and have a lot of rich experiences. Mm. Yeah. And that's, it even just came to mind. I didn't even know that I wanted to talk with you about it until literally we got on the subject, but I would just love your thoughts on like, what do you think it is about? It could be Harry Potter. could be like any series. Mm. Like I think of like, um, I don't know if you're watching, like if you're a Lord of the Rings fan or anything oh, yeah. like that. So totally. like rings of yes. power that are coming out right now. Like, I don't know what it is, but there's just something about like the multiple installments of a TV show, a book, of a series to where it's like book two, three, four, five, six, you know, so on and so forth. They're just so enjoyable. On now, a hundred percent. I think what happens, and I used to feel this when I was young, you know, if I read a single book, you fall in love. Yeah. It's like a romantic experience yeah. To become this intimate with the characters and i don't mean that in any kind of sexual way we're just yeah. talking about the feeling that i got to be on the inside of somebody else's journey in life ian forster talks about this in his collection of lectures called aspects of a novel they've been put into a book it's one of my favorite books of all time about literature and he says that what's really powerful are there are two kinds of characters there are round characters and then there are flat characters. Round characters are multidimensional. So it's Snape, right? He's multidimensional. We think he's a flat character for several books that he's just this two-dimensional person who's evil and you can just dismiss him. And then all of a sudden he becomes this round character where we learn his backstory and we understand who he is and we actually fall for him. We're like, yeah. what an amazing guy. I didn't know he could be this person. So when we're reading a book, most individual books have some flat characters because they're easy to write and that helps sort of push the story forward. And then the primary characters are round. And when you're involved with a round character, you have a feeling of personal depth and connection. You've gotten inside their logic story and you understand their perspective on the world and you develop empathy because you're experiencing them from the inside out. And once you've done that, you're loyal. Mm -hmm. You want to know more about them. You want to understand their whole life. You want to champion their cause. And so these series writers discover that. They're like, well, let me give you the next installment of this yeah. person for yep. whom you have become deeply attached and you want the well-being of this character to go on forever, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, TV. And I think what's amazing is the movie level quality of television now. When I was a kid, obviously, TV was mostly short form, maybe a half hour yeah. or an hour. And it, the, the actual quality, they, they used, you know, movie sets in Burbank. They weren't going on location. Now, some of these series are just like your favorite movie. Oh, yeah. But that movie is going on for, you know, two years, three years, five years. It's amazing. Mm. 
Amazing. Oh, yeah. So much. So, you know, as you were talking about Harry Potter and just the nature of the scope of the scope and like the fan theorizing, you know, one thing in this, like I've talked about this on the podcast so, so much and it reveals my my level of nerddom, but I, I love it so much is um, as a kid, I was always into comic books in the past couple of years. I've really gotten back into them in the storytelling nature. And I'll tell you that I find that same energy in that community because it's, you know, month to month, what's going to happen, all of that stuff. Yeah. Oh, comic books are so <laughs> underrated. Gosh, they're Completely so agree. good. Yeah. In fact, one of the things I discovered by having, you know, kids, they got into graphic novels and into comic books. And I discovered that I was somewhat illiterate in reading them. Like there is a certain skill to knowing, like, especially now with graphic novels where it's not just square, square, square in a row, you know, there's a lot happening on the page and oh, yeah. there's, there are little insets and then there are caption bubbles. And then there's the way the characters are drawn to interact with each other. And I had to ask for help. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> it's yeah. like with my yeah. kids, there's something here I'm not quite getting, or why am I not understanding the sequence of these bubbles? And they knew because they had really absorbed the genre and the clues to how those structures, do you find that when you're reading that there's an actual structure oh, yeah. to the way it's laid out? Oh yeah. There's, there's definitely sometimes to wherever like I'll naturally read through it. It's like, okay, I don't think I read that. I don't think I read that. Right. I need to go back um, yes. and, and reread that. And especially like, I don't know how familiar you are with like manga or anything, which is like oh, the Japanese. I, yes. It's completely different because they read it the exact opposite way that we opposite hear way. Yeah. That's true. You know, I hadn't thought about that with manga because I haven't read it. I just know it as yeah. the genre. My kids did. I have students who have. But that really makes a lot of sense. And there's a really beautiful example, I think, of experience and encounter through yeah. literature, because that's a completely different culture than the one that we're in. And so we are adapting ourselves to their literary tropes and habits. And mm -hmm. we're discovering there is another way to deliver content that is exciting to us. I think of BTS, that massive Korean pop band mm. same thing uh th they are globally renowned people are fascinated with them from every language group in the world and they are experiencing korean culture every time they encounter them and so even though they're not living in korea and even though i'm not in japan um to understand manga these are the globalized ways that we are creating more of a village out of our world instead of just always relying on our own perspective our own people our own familiarity the more we do that the more we create that for children the better human beings they are they will just grow up to be better human beings yeah and that made me think of and one of the things that i've been thinking a, a lot about over the past couple of years is the power of stories yeah and, and teaching and learning i would love to ask you know what what have you learned about engage engaging personally with stories to get like oh man i you know i learned this thing from this story you know harry potter is filled with them you know so many things are filled with them or even like going through it with with kids or going yeah. through it with you know the people that we mentor and things like that can you talk to me well, about that for sure so that is the premise of historical fiction isn't it it's setting the historical record in the context of a narrative so that we will experience the historical era. We won't just read about it and know the information. 
And that's why we become obsessed with, and, and film does it as well. That's why we become obsessed, let's say, with World War II movies. We're just trying to really experience and understand what that must have been like. And we do it better when we're invested in the characters and when it's told in a narrative form. Additionally, when you said that, I started thinking about how we use story in other contexts as well. Mm -hmm. So for instance, if we're trying to teach our kids math, Math by itself as an abstract form is not interesting. But if math is meaningfully a part of a skill set that a child is using so that they can be the person they want to be, which is a carpenter, a seamstress, a video gamer, um, a person who builds, that creates a different relationship to math. And it's the story you're telling yourself about why math is meaningful that creates that motivation. And so when you said that about story, I thought of it in those two ways. One is the story that we might find in a book or a movie, but the other is the story we tell ourselves. How do we make meaning? Meaning is the core of what a storytelling is. It's not an accounting of a schedule or a sequence of events. Story has meaning attached to it. It's more than just the day planner or the timeline. It is actually what meaning do I take from what I'm learning. And that almost always is in some kind of a narrative format. And we generate it automatically for ourselves. Mm. Yeah, man, I love that. Uh, you know, we've, we've talked about experience, we've talked about encounter. Let's talk about, and we've touched on reading some, what are some of the things that, um, that help you get the most out of just reading? I love to suggest that just every now and then go into a, a, a point of view or an opinion and read from the opposite side of the one you hold. It's really hard because the whole time what you're doing is destroying the arguments of the other person. So what I recommend to my students and what I've done as a discipline for myself is I try to read from the other perspective and then see if I can narrate back their perspective without showing my hand. Can I use their language and put their viewpoint into a cogent argument that they would recognize as accurate to how they see it? And the reason that's valuable is that you are starting to recognize that reading has the capacity to be under your control. Mm -hmm. And so because it's under your control, sometimes you're not reading critically. You're reading for cheerleading. You're like, okay, I have this position. I need to find expert cheerleaders to tell me I'm right. But if that's the only kind of reading we do, then we actually are just in an echo chamber and we're never actually hearing the challenges that could advance that field or that theory or that behavior. So reading outside of your own beliefs to me is really critical. Mm. Yeah. And it even, that even brought the idea of, to mind of like it it almost strengthens our muscle to engage with people that we disagree with because yeah. it, you know just as you mentioned with reading it's under our control and so i can read the opposite view and then again i'm just putting this all together but then it's like okay well then i can go to an experience or i can watch a movie or i can watch yes. a documentary and then all of a sudden when the encounter inevitably happens i am more prepared Oh, mm, good job. That. You got it, no. man. That sums up hey. my whole book right no, there, I, bud. Caleb, you're on it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I love it. Um, 
I, I would love to ask you because I imagine you know and reading 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 touches on part of it of like some people they don't read because it's like I'm I'm not a good reader you know and and so by that it's like well I would love your thoughts on like what are some of the limiting beliefs that you have count have encountered around learning that you see you know uh, us experience gosh no one's asked me that question i think it's such a fabulous one what are our limiting beliefs around learning well the first and most obvious one is i'm not smart mm -hmm. um and here's what's interesting to me even straight a students don't think they're smart i was that girl i got straight a's i felt like a fraud because i was capable of getting a's because i knew how to do the system but I wasn't great at retaining. Like I could take a test today, get an A, and then two weeks later, if I hadn't studied again, I would not get that A. And so I felt like that meant that I wasn't good at learning, but that isn't what learning is. Learning and smarts are not about test-taking skills. Being smart, everybody has a kind of genius. I remember one of my friends, um, her youngest has Down syndrome. We were talking about him. You know, He had gone to school one day, this was probably when he was in fourth or fifth grade. And he came home and she said, oh my gosh, Jeremy is so smart. Here's what he did today. And I, this warmth from the top of my head to the tips of my toes poured over me. And I said, Sherry, do you realize you just called Jeremy smart? She goes, he is smart. And I said, I know. I think you are the best mother I've ever heard. Because what you're doing is you are seeing within the scope of who your child is, their own cleverness the way they use the resources they have to troubleshoot or solve their problems. And he doesn't have the same capacities that all, all of us do. But when you see him use his, the language you used was he was smart. And so I think one of the biggest barriers to learning is not appreciating just how resourceful everyone is at meeting their own needs, even when they have a diagnosably limited IQ. There is a kind of genius to being human. And so if we can tap into that and notice when it's in action, we're better learners. So that would be the first one. Yeah. A second limit that I see is only thinking that your community is right. So you're in a community that claims the moral high ground, that says they have the absolute truth, that believes they've identified the correct political outlook. And by the way, this, this goes for all sides. I oh. am not talking about the right or the left because yeah. they both all do it. Maybe even some centrists we can throw in there. When we come from that posture, we have already decided we are not available to learn anything. I thought during COVID, it was really interesting to watch the reactions to masking and um, vaccines because people tended to just get siloed in their groups and what I just kept asking myself was, well, what's the current data? Mm -hmm. So at the beginning, it was washing your hands and wiping down all of your foods. We learned after about a year that was pretty unnecessary. I wasn't angry about it. I was like, oh, good. Now I don't have to wipe down my canned goods, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, So staying curious and open rather than having to defend the conclusions your group has already drawn that's one of the biggest barriers to learning. It, it keeps you locked in ideology as opposed to actually being a student. 
Hmm. Yeah. Is there is there anything else around learning that that either you've just seen, you know, through all of your, literally your decades of teaching <laughs> and education um, that you wish that more people knew about or that maybe you feel like you have um, just a greater appreciation for because you're around it so much? Yeah, this is going to sound like I'm promoting Brave Writer, but I'm just going to say it anyway. Yeah. Private private writing, the mm-hmm. biggest help in self-awareness. And without self-awareness, you can't have good thinking. So I love this practice. Dr. Peter Elbow from Amherst uh, University of Massachusetts. He was sort of the guru all through the 70s and 80s. His belief is that we get access to our interiors best when we don't have to focus on grammar and spelling and punctuation. So we start with a practice where we set a timer for a few minutes, three to five, maybe seven, eight minutes. And then we write exactly what's happening in our brains. We get it out of our bodies and onto a sheet of paper where it's externalized from us so that we can actually read it later and actually get to know ourselves. I can't tell you, I'm a writer, so I cannot tell you how many times I've been in the shower and I'm like, this is a great thought. And then I go to write it and it comes out completely differently because our thoughts are a little bit unformed, even as we're thinking them. And it's when we commit our thoughts to language that we start to actually have a relationship with our own biases, our emotions, our limits. You know, we might say some generalization in a head thought when we go to write it on paper, we're like, actually, I don't really know the research on this. It's just an idea I have that, quote, most people don't do X. Mm-hmm. And then you write it down and you're like, I wonder if most people is true. I wonder which most people I'm talking about. Yeah. Right. But when it lives in your head, it kind of it exists to reinforce you. And writing actually helps you externalize it and get to know whether or not those things are true. And over time you really have a different relationship with yourself. Mm. I'd love to hear some of the other exercises that you've encountered and come across recently. Cause like one that has stuck, stuck with me from reading the book and from the last conversation is the great wall of questions. I think <laughs> about that all the time. And like, Do as, you? Oh yeah. I think about it all, all the time. And like, as, um, you know, I'm, I'm recently engaged. And so as oh. we've, as we've been talking about, you know, with my fiance about having kids, I'm like, yeah, this is something that we're doing. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. For those who don't know, the great wall of questions is just an exercise I came up with, with post-it notes. So for a week or a few days, when your kids ask a question, it goes on the great wall, pick, you know, a wall or a door or a whiteboard in your house where those post-it notes will stick and you just write them down. And they can be any questions. So your child might ask you, what is a black hole? You write that down. They might ask you, why did you give the green toothbrush to Susie and not me? Write that down. They might say, why do I have to go to the dentist? Write that down. They might see that you've written down what is a black hole on the wall. And the next day they say, how big is a black hole? And then they start to build even a chain of questions from that original one. But you just let your kids know, we're going to collect every question you have for fill in the blank amount of time, three days a week, however long. And we're not going to answer them right away. And then on Sunday at dinner, I'm just going to start peeling them off the wall. And we're just going to discuss as many of them as you want. What that does is it gives your kids confidence that it's okay to have unanswered questions. First Mm -hmm. of all, having the question itself is half of it. 
just having it, wondering about it, letting it percolate, not answering it definitively. And then secondly, the conversation is one of the ways we handle questions. We don't just fire back an answer. We have a genuine exchange between more than one person that includes the nuances. So if it's, why did you give Susie the green toothbrush instead of me? A typical parent answer is she asked first, or that's her favorite color, or I can get you a green one too. But that doesn't really get at the heart of what that question's about. The question is probably not about a green toothbrush. Mm -hmm. It's probably about why do you love Susie more than me? Or why do you prefer Susie more than me? Or why do you hear Susie's requests and you don't hear mine? So you leave it up there for a few days. On Sunday, when you pull it down, it's like, gosh, I've been thinking about this. I'm wondering if it's the toothbrush. Is there any other way that you think I prefer Susie to you? And you have a different conversation. And same with the black hole. You know what? I don't know what it is. Let's get the laptop and let's look it up together. And let's find out more about these like that. Yeah. Are, are there any other exercises that come to mind, either recent or from the book that really stand out to you or that you love personally doing too? I do. My One of my favorite activities that I put in this book, and I've taught it for years in my um, Brave Writer company in a class called Groovy Grammar. I did this with my kids and I loved it so much. I've done it with so many students since. Basically, it's this. Lewis Carroll wrote a poem called Jabberwocky. Uh, he's the guy who wrote Alice in Wonderland and Jabberwocky is a poem inside that story. Jabberwocky is filled with invented language, made up nonsense words. And yet you can read the whole poem and you know exactly what the storyline is trying to get at. So what I did with my kids is I go through this poem and we start trying to define the meaning of the invented language and assigning it a part of speech. And what you'll notice right away is that there's some flexibility here. There are some audio clues, like you're listening to a word that says twas brillig, and it sounds sort of like bright or brilliant. And so you find yourself leaning towards those meanings just because of an audio cue. And then when we say twas brillig, sometimes we might say, well, that's an adjective, like it was bright, it was beautiful, it was brilliant. But it could also just mean twas brillig and brillig is a word for morning. So it could also be a noun. Twas morning, twas afternoon, twas sunset, twas, you know, December. And so when we start to really deconstruct invented language, we start to notice what are the nuances that influence and shape our interpretations when language is landing on us. And we start to recognize the flexibility of words in terms of their grammar usage how you might take an adjective and turn it into a noun or a noun into a verb or a verb into an adverb. And that playfulness really shows up when you start deconstructing a poem. So what we would do is my kids would actually build their own sort of lexicon, little mini dictionary for the words in the poem. And then I'd have them write a follow-up poem that continues the story using the language the way they defined it. Uh, it's a bit of a sophisticated assignment for an eight-year-old, but it works great with junior high and high school. And it was one of our more satisfying experiences. Mm. A couple of the practices I want I want to ask you about is um, you talk about the, you mentioned an exercise called the keen observations exercises. Can you talk about that? Because again, that's just, you, you go ahead and talk about it. It's just something I've been thinking about a lot. <laughs> 
I love that you brought that up. So keen observation is a skill that all writers and thinkers need. It's the capacity to get more detail, more vocabulary, more nuance. When a child is young, anywhere from age five to about 10 or 11, they are learning to keenly observe through their five senses. So sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch, the classic five. So we start in um, our program, we start with an exercise called keen observation of an item, where we do this very detailed evaluation of an item, for instance, a cup of hot chocolate. So we're going to smell it. We're going to look at it from above and below and in the light and not in the light. And what shape do the marshmallows make floating on top? And we're going to get out our um, Crayolas and find the right color brown. Oh, it's more mahogany or it's more, you know, chocolate as opposed to the word brown. So we're going to do that in the area of our senses. But as we move into sort of the rhetorical stage of thinking, which doesn't really happen until high school, now I want us to do the same thing using what I call the senses of the mind to keenly examine or keenly observe an idea. So the senses of the mind are different than the senses of the body. And for me, I just, you know, I made them up from my own observations. So the first way that you engage an idea is to pay attention to all the nonverbal ways you understand that idea. So let's just take, for instance, homeschooling, since that's so familiar. Yeah. If I ask a student to keenly observe the social issue called homeschooling, whether or not we should allow people to homeschool, the first thing that's going to shape them in their attitudes is their images of homeschooling. A kid who's been homeschooled, it's going to be kitchen table, cozy couch, mom making cookies and reading aloud. You know, their images are going to really match whatever their experience is. A kid who's never been homeschooled, they might see it completely differently. A messy house, a kid who's not getting anything done, a mom who's nagging them into doing schoolwork, right? Like, Different images are going to emerge and they're already shaping your opinion. So what I do in this exercise is I start out by encouraging them to express all those images through a series of questions, but then I start making them challenge their own assumptions. So I might say, you know, who's, who's in your field of vision for homeschooling? They're like, oh, a family sitting at a kitchen table in a house. And the next question is, where are they at a table? Okay. Um, are they in a house, an apartment, a yurt, a tent, a hotel room? Suddenly the question becomes, oh, wait a minute. Do some families homeschool in an apartment? Because I've only ever done it in a house. And then maybe another question, homeless shelter? Can it go on there? Like suddenly you're yeah. you're being challenged to think more about the topic than you've you've done reflexively. So we move from images to slogans to vocabulary the other side uses versus the vocabulary you use, facts that you assume are true, information you don't yet know. Um, we talk about your loyalties. What community would you harm if you changed your mind? So for instance, if you're writing about homeschool and you're a homeschooler, to even consider the other side means you're gonna invalidate your parents. That's really hard to invalidate your parents or maybe your church or maybe your community of co-op. So. We name those things, the loyalties, the images, the slogans, the facts, before we start writing about it, because this is all the stuff that's going to interfere with our ability to do good research. Another idea that I would love your thought on is called taking bearings and lateral reading. Can you talk about that one? 
Yeah, there was a study done by Stanford that was trying to understand how students today could do better internet research. Part of the problem with all of us is we land on a website, the web website looks real. And so we just assume if they put up a statistic and then they name some kind of source that sounds official, it must be true. And so Stanford, um, their, you know, whatever, their professors, the academy there, started doing research into whether or not there was a meaningful way to get to the heart of whatever this proposed information was offering us. And they took a pack of students, they took faculty from Stanford, they took some fact checkers, people who are trained to do fact checking as a living, um, and they pitted them against each other. And they gave them a certain amount of material that they were supposed to identify as reliable or unreliable. The students were the least good at it. They were immediately sucked in to whatever the website told them. And they just assumed if it looked official and it had, you know, PhDs behind all the names, it must be accurate. Um, the faculty was not much better than the students. They got very invested and involved in looking at the names of people and they were not as capable of identifying when there was sort of um, maybe a hidden agenda. The fact checkers, however, did something that Stanford now calls lateral reading. And it's this. When you land on a website, no matter how official looking it is, the first thing you want to do is leave it and open yet another window on your browser and start putting in keywords, names of people, organizations, papers, you know, from journals, the name of the journal, start putting those in a Google search so that you're actually vetting the contents of that website. And in the reason he said lateral is because you end up with so many tabs open and you're looking at, you know, Wikipedia, you're looking at government, you're looking at universities, you're suddenly seeing articles that are debunking. Um, and the fact checkers had a much higher reliable uh, ability to identify agendas. It's not necessarily to identify true or false, but to be able to say, well, this one's a think tank. This one is raising money for this cause. You know, if you're going to look at, for instance, websites about animal rights, it doesn't mean that people for the ethical treatment of animals are not telling you the truth when they cite their statistics, but they are definitely only going to cite statistics that support the agenda they have. So being able to identify that there is an agenda helps you understand the argument they're making. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you're saying, well, now that website's unreliable. What you're saying is, this website is reliable to share a, person, a certain point of view. And if I want more information, I'm going to have to add more websites to my search. Yep. Two other things I want to ask you about but before that. I always love just giving people just the chance of, I know that we've covered a lot of different things in this. Is there anything just top of mind that you want to make sure that we mention or, or talk about or any ideas or anything like that? One of the things that I loved about writing Raising Critical Thinkers is that I think it has a dual audience. We're definitely wanting to raise children who think well, but I think right now we're in a crisis of thinking in the United States. And a lot of that is because we are in a post-traumatic stress relationship with the internet and cable mm -hmm. television. This sort of, um, when we dispensed with the Fairness Doctrine in 1988, because of the inception of cable news, we lost sort of this 
perspective that we should invest in multiple perspectives. We lost it. What the belief was is we don't need the fairness doctrine anymore because there will be so many channels. People can get information from a lot of sources. So each source doesn't have to share multiple views. What they didn't anticipate is we just siloed ourselves into our own communities and just kept reinforcing the views we already hold. So from my perspective, this book does a good job of helping the adult reading it to also evaluate their own thinking and to have tools and strategies for becoming a more nuanced thinker themselves. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I, you know, I tried really hard to not give my perspectives because that's not what this book is about. It's really about investigating your own. Mm. So two things I want to ask you about. The first is, what has allowed you or helped you grow more comfortable learning from discomfortable or learning about discomfortable things? Um, well, <laughs> I don't know for sure, yeah. but, uh, if people know the Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram mm -hmm. four and the Enneagram fours, uh, sort of bent is it, to look oh, for, yeah. to look for what's missing. And so I think like just from a very early age, I was always noticing what isn't being represented. I was, you know, maybe almost in a, um, identity way, right? Like yeah. trying to stand out from the crowd by noticing what isn't being noticed. I remember, I mean, this goes way back. I was like five or six years old and our school took a field trip to a farm and there were all these baby lambs and mothers, mother sheep, right? And everybody was just so into the baby lambs. And I was young, I might've been six. And I remember thinking, I'm going to notice the mothers. <laughs> like, like, why are the lambs getting all the attention? The yeah. mothers need to get some attention. And so I think my um, attention goes to what's not being said, what's not mm. being noticed in kind of just a habitual personality way. But then I really think it ramped up in college and studying abroad. I feel like that just blew it open in a mm. way that um, was really beneficial to me. And not to say I do it well. I yeah. have been judgmental, opinionated. Yeah. I've advocated for sides like strenuously, you know? So I'm not saying that I've always been a, I'm not a balanced thinker. Yeah. I, I'm not any more balanced than anyone else, but I am a more willing thinker, I think, than some people. I'm more willing to entertain what is uncomfortable. Mm. Okay. So I got to ask one follow-up after that. So what do you, and I, I would believe that critical thinking would fall into this too, but I would love to ask, what do you see or what do you wish more people were paying attention to or they're not looking at right now or wish that you wish people were learning more about? I wish people were paying more attention to their own knee-jerk reactions and less to how upsetting other people's behaviors are to them. I think that would be number yeah. one. Like, when you feel smugness, I always like to tell people my tell is smugness. So if I'm going along reading and I'm like, well, that person's an idiot. I'm like, oh, oh, I'm not critically thinking right now. Yeah. I'm just being smug. I'm assuming I know more than they do. Kind of like how we started with my friend Toria and yeah. her experiences instead of. And so now what I know is when I feel smug, I'm like, oh, there's something I don't want to know right now. <laughs> There's something I don't want to know because I'm afraid it will destabilize my views. So what is that thing I don't want to know right now? Mm. Okay, that's good. Well, I would regret if I didn't ask you, what is, you know, 
uh, a couple of books that has just radically, you know, has just got you thinking or you've really enjoyed learning from recently? So one book I read recently is a memoir. It's called Freckled, and it was about somebody's um, experience of growing up with hippie parents in the 1960s on Kauai in Hawaii. That book is phenomenal. It really does a great job, actually, of talking about what it's like to grow up in a family, a pretty dysfunctional one, honestly, and the slow dawning awareness that her life was not normal. And then her craving for normalcy and also kind of discovering that normal doesn't exist, right? Like there was this sort of evolving understanding that she goes through. So that book was really enjoyable. I read it on my way to Hawaii. So, you know, there you go. Uh, So that was really, really fun. And then um, trying to think, I feel like there was another book that I wanted to tell you about that I just read. Oh, I know. I just reread a book called The People of the Lie by M. Scott Peck. That book is from the 1980s. And he really is dissecting what he considers the problem of evil and the notion that there are people who who embody evil as an idea. And I'm very resistant to that idea. So I read this book. I had read it in the 80s, but I decided to reread it because I felt like maybe... This is a place that I need to learn something. And I did learn. I think as a psychotherapist, his perspective about evil was really surprising to me. I have a hard time sometimes uh, recognizing when I'm being gaslit or manipulated because I am so willing to take their perspective and try it on for size. So I felt like it was a corrective for me. It was an ability for me to recognize sometimes when I'm having that ick sensation it's because the other person is not goodwilled they are deliberately either self-protecting or doing something to harm me and so i think that was a nice corrective to my extreme openness to everyone's perspective Mm. that's great well i know that people are going to want to keep up with you julie and you know get raising critical thinkers brave learner you know brave writer all that stuff where's the best place for people to go to do all those things so if you go to the uh, Brave Writer website, bravewriter.com, you'll learn as much as you can about my writing program and what we do there, especially for homeschoolers. But I have two book websites, thebravelearner.com and raisingcriticalthinkers.com. But those books are also available everywhere. You know, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, indie bookstores, anywhere you go, they're they're out. Uh, and then if you want to follow me, I have a podcast called the Brave Writer Podcast. And on Instagram, I'm at Julie Brave Writer. Awesome. Well, Julie, thanks again so much for being on the podcast. It's always a pleasure. And just thanks for doing the work as well and for sharing it with us. That was an amazing conversation. You're a great interviewer, Caleb. Thank you. I always love talking with Julie because there's just so much to learn. I always love this. And I mean, we're just going to have to do another another round here again. And so just absolutely love talking with her, love learning from her. And I think 
my big takeaway from this conversation or what I would what I would recommend as a next step for this is finding a world that you can explore and learn more about. It could be a world that is real, could be a world that is made up such as Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings that we were talking about. Or, of course, I'm going to recommend the Marvel movies as well. That would be another world to explore and look into. Or it could be learning about another piece of history. Or learning about uh, an, a historical civilization like Rome. I'm learning a little bit about Rome right now and and what led to them. But that, that would just be my, my big takeaway from this. Of just learning learn from a different world enter into a different world enter into an unfamiliar world from the one that you may be used to and so yeah that's the biggest thing that has got me thinking from this conversation but i absolutely love it so much fun and uh go pick up her book and uh, become a better critical thinker as well actually i did want to mention that um you know check out her previous episode which we did uh, about critical thinking as well another good one would be um by bonnie christian which we did later uh later in 2022 as well so those are just a couple of things that i want to recommend remember to keep up with us by subscribing to the newsletter in the show notes where i give you all the best things that i'm learning from thinking about all of those good things from books to podcasts to literally anything that is just coming across my desk or across my phone or anything that I'm thinking about and learning about. So those are some of the things and that's all that I have for today. I want to say thanks to Sam Massey for providing the music for this podcast. Thank you to Julie again for being on the podcast as well and uh, just absolutely love our conversations so much and we will be bringing another one here to you sometime in the future. And that's all that I have for today. Thanks so much for joining me in the Learner's Corner today. Thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. My name is Caleb Mason, and until next time, keep learning and keep growing.